My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to Generation Squeeze's Hard Truths Podcast. In today's episode, I'm chatting with UBC policy professor and Gen Squeeze founder, Paul Kershaw, about a recently published article he wrote for McLean's magazine. The article is titled, Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar homeowners can help. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? And why do you want to increase people's taxes? <laughs> Hello. I'm well. I'm, I'm well. So pleased to be on the show today being interviewed. And um, it's not that we sit out to want to raise people's taxes. We want to address some public policy problems that are giving rise to this skyrocketing home value that has left behind an enormous gap between what the value of homes are, how that plays out in terms of the cost of rent or home purchases, and what people actually earn. And one of the policy areas that gives rise to this challenge, that incentivizes, in fact, Canadians of all stripes to certain moments hope that home prices will rise, is our tax policy. Because there is what we call the home ownership tax shelter. So just as a reminder to our listeners, um, when you go to work today, you know, all of the dollars that you earn uh, at work will be subject to taxation. If you take some of your earnings after income taxes and you invest in the stock market, 50% of any return you make on an investment will be subject to taxation. But for a homeowner like me, any wealth windfall that I gain from home prices lot rising, and let's be clear, I've almost been a homeowner now for two decades, and home prices have been rising a lot over that time period, those windfalls to me while I sleep and watch TV and cook, the increased value I get in my home is not subject to taxation. Barely any of it is subject to taxation. And so when that is the case, when our public policy shelters some kinds of assets from taxations, it's a signal that says, hey, Canadians, go organize your investment strategies around this asset because you'll be able to keep more of the return on investment from taxes. So it's signaling that's where we want Canadians to put their investment. But that is the, of the very kind of harmful policy signal that entangles Canadians, incentivizes Canadians to think of housing not just as a place to call home, but also as an investment strategy that an investment strategy that increasingly can make people very rich. And so we're trying to disrupt having housing being treated as an investment strategy first and foremost and say, no, homes first, investment second. And that's why we see we need to address a range of policy issues. And we've been working hard on interest rate policy and how that gives rise to housing inflation and supply, but also taxation. And this piece Inviting those of us like myself who now reside in homes that are over a million dollars is asking many of us who are most privileged in the housing market to recognize how we might be implicated in a cultural context that has celebrated home prices rising far faster than earnings, giving us increased wealth, locking many other talented, often younger folks out of housing security. Right. And in the article you write that our tax system has sheltered much of the $3.2 trillion in added housing wealth that homeowners have pocketed since 1977. So this isn't a small amount of money. 
3.2 trillion dollars is more than Canada's economy produces in a single year. Um, so it's yeah, it's an enormous amount of money, and uh, you know part of that increase just represents you know, you know there are far more principal residences today because there are far more Canadians today than there were in uh, 1977. So you know it's not surprising that there's more wealth in our principal residences. But what we're observing is that that wealth over the last decades has been sheltered and that's gone hand in hand with when the baby boomers uh, came of age as young adults when homes were in reach much more for what hard work and you know uh, you know a single university degree of any university degree could get you a good job and then over that time they made homes as whether they're nurses or waitresses or truck drivers etc and especially in some of our cities many of those folks who were regular working class you know middle class folks they now are actually remarkably affluent they may not often see themselves that way but they could potentially be in the global one percent where you only need to have a little more than a million dollars of assets to be in that global one percent and housing has done that for a lot of regular folks and so when we shelter that from taxation we do two things we continue to have people say let's treat an investment and we also leave um narrow room to raise revenue to invest in important things so we have to go and tax more people's work income what they make when they're you know their their paid jobs their income and we could shift more towards raising revenue from taxing the value on homes above a million dollars which applies to 10 12 percent of canadians so the vast majority of canadians would not be subject to this tax and that would allow us to take pressure off the middle income earnings and the working class earnings of many folks including many renters and so it's not about necessarily taxing more it's about a tax shift taxing things we want less of like rising home values and taxing less what we want more of like better incomes for middle and lower earners so let's um let's get into the specifics of the proposal so it's a progressive tax that you've written about and you say that so for someone whose home is valued at 1.1 million dollars they would pay just 200 dollars a year on that in terms of the, the surtax that you're proposing. So then how does that increase as the home value increases? Yeah, great question. So it's, it's 200 bucks if you're at 1.1 million. If you're at 1.2 million, it's 400 bucks. Um, if you get to 1.5 million, that must make it about a thousand if I'm doing my math correct. Um, and it climbs until you, when you get at your 2 million, I think we're at about $3,000. I have to go remind myself about the exact details. And this is you know this should be put in context if you are a middle income earner in canada making about 60 grand a year you're paying provincially and federally around at least ten thousand dollars in income taxes a year so when we're talking about someone in a two million dollar home potentially contributing like I think it's $3,000 more. I should probably bring this up for the sake of accuracy. You know, that is much more modest. Like if you're in the 2 million range, you're in the top few percent of Canadians living in the most affluent principal residences. If you were in 60,000, you're like, you know, you're a middle earner. And so we are really with this surtax doing a lot of things that are intended intentionally to be disruptive and address how 
home ownership now has really transformed sort of class dynamics in Canada, transformed who is wealthy. We often tend to think about people being affluent in terms only of their incomes. But you can have a young doctor in the GTA these days who's not going to be able to afford home ownership and maybe struggling to like rent a three-bedroom place as they're wanting to raise their kids. And you can have someone who, as I mentioned earlier, was a waitress or a truck driver or whatnot, got into homes, single attached homes in some of our cities some decades ago, and now their homes are worth many millions of dollars. Heck, you can even have a senior on fixed income getting the guaranteed income supplement. So around $22,000 a year, really low income, you might think. But living in a $2 million home, they own outright. They have, you might think, poverty level incomes, and yet they are global 1% in terms of their wealth. So housing has really changed these things. And we are saying we need to update our tax system for a whole range of reasons to promote more housing affordability, to address housing wealth inequality, and to raise revenue to do a range of things that matter today, whether investing in the long-term care that that senior that I just spoke about is really gonna be counting on, or investing in childcare that we know can no longer cost another rent size payment, etc. Right. And I, and I do want to ask about the case of that senior, because that's related to some of the pushback this proposal has been getting. But before doing that, I, just clarification. So as I read it, the person who has a home valued $2 million, um, they would be paying a 1% tax. And, uh, and it's 1% on everything above $1 million. No, no, no. Actually, okay, this is good. No, no, no. So it is a graduated tax. It is, yeah. So on the value of a home between $1 million and $1.5 million, the proposal that our group put together, and we should talk about all these people because it isn't just Jen Squeeze, there's a lot of people who've been now working on this. So between, on value, under a million, no surtax. One to $1.5 million, 0.2% of the value between one and one and a half million. One and a half million to two million, it would be half a percent on that value. And then on the value above two million, it would be a full 1%. And people are like, well, there's a lot of numbers. I just got confused. But if you think about when we pay our income taxes, we know that as our incomes rise, the income tax rate we pay on the value of our incomes as it rises gets higher. But you know, I might be paying between federal and provincial taxes on my um, my next dollar about sort of forty five percent in taxes. But on my first dollar, I pay almost nothing. And so, in the same way, we're saying, okay, on a big chunk of your value, the first million you pay no surtax. But then we start to have just slightly higher rates as the value of your home goes up. And I can confirm that at $2 million, I've brought it up so I have the math correctly, the proposal would be a $3,500 surtax. If you're at $1.4 million, it'd be $800. If you're at $1.8 million, it'd be $2,500. If you're at $3 million, here's where you know, it really kicks in, it would be about $13,500. So we're asking the person who's in like the top 1% of homeowners in the country, uh, less than that, to be paying a surtax that's actually quite equivalent to what a middle earner would pay annually on their income. And you also mentioned that this isn't a proposal that Jen Squeeze has come up with alone, that there is actually a network of people who've worked on coming up with this and supporting it. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the history of how this came together and the other organizations who've been involved. 
Great question. Uh, so some years ago, in 20, back in 2016, when Generation Squeeze first published uh, our Code Red series of reports about housing, declaring it an emergency that we had to respond to uh, this growing gap between home prices and earnings, you know, we, we identified a range of policy issues that were giving rise to this problem. Like this, it's a systemic problem. So you have to go to the root causes, which are these policies that design the system. And we pointed out the homeownership tax shelter, which is effectively we don't, you know, we don't have to pay capital gains taxation on our principal residences. Um, as we were doing that, we actually then said, though, you don't solve that problem necessarily by implementing a capital gains tax on principal residences because, you know, it's kind of like the horse is out of the barn. It's hard to bring it back in. Like if we were to start, you know, now going forward taxing capital gains on principal residences, it would actually potentially create a range of inequities, you know, for taxpayers that I don't want to go into. But I just want to make clear that actually that isn't the vision that Gen Squeeze first put forward. We, we published in 2018 a version of this uh, surtax on home value over a million bucks. We think that's how to address the sort of same kind of homeownership tax shelter, starting in an incremental kind of way, more politically palatable, and so on. So we did that in 2018, published in the Canadian Tax Journal and in other reports for the broader public. And then um, as we were going forward and the housing crisis was increasing, we collaborated with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and senior leadership there to host what was called a solutions lab that was looking at the problem of wealth inequality and generational inequity and how these, how these two things were intersecting as a result of housing trends. And in that solutions lab, we brought together oh, 80 or so stakeholders uh, who are experts in a range of issues. And of those 80, um, you know, some started to break out in three working groups. And the working group started looking at interest rate policy and how that was, you know, contributing housing inflation. Uh, others were looking at how, you know, we could, you know, protect people who are really highly leveraged in the housing system and do so in a way that, you know, we could help them be less leveraged and give rise to creating more not from uh, profit housing. And a third working group focused on taxation issues. And this includes people like my colleague Elizabeth Google at the University of Victoria and Julian Pennant and Lindsay McLaren at the University of Calgary, uh, John Dickey from the Canadian Federation of Apartment Associations, Mark Lee from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, Steve Pomeroy, who's a well-known housing expert at Focus Consulting, Tom Davidoff, another one of my colleagues at the University of BC, Shahar Rotberg from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Uh, there were folks from Canadians for Tax Fairness, BC Nonprofit Housing Association, Cooperative Housing Federation of BC. So you can see a, a range of people. And let's be clear, some of these people are representing organizations and not doing the work on behalf of that organization. They were bringing their expertise and doing it behalf on themselves. So I just want to make sure not all organizations, you know, necessarily feel like they contributed directly, that they're endorsing, because, you know, this is a controversial idea in lots of ways. But it has now many, many um, people's thoughts and heads behind it. And what we continue to do is to try and kind of find this sweet spot where the moment you mention any kind of tax in Canadian society, you'll actually get a knee-jerk reaction whereby many people are like, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And what's often made me giggle since we launched the most recent round of uh, knowledge mobilization about this tax policy idea. So the working groups, uh, the Solution Lab, I should say, ended at the end of the last calendar year. We started like drawing more public attention to the working group's proposals about a surtax on home value over a million bucks starting in January. And I, I remember talking with, you know, in particular, this um, CTV news anchor in Saskatoon. And he was actually um, quite 
critical of the idea of adding a surtax on home um, over one million dollars. Like that's just not going to be fair to people. And you know why would you do that? And I asked him, well, do you live in a million dollar home? He's like, no. I said, well, do any of your neighbors live in a million dollar home in Saskatoon? Like, no. And he said, like, don't you think it's kind of odd that the person who in Metro Vancouver says I live in a million dollar home and I'm getting wealthy in ways that are, you know, these windfalls that are like not representing my doing really hard work or being extra smart or being extra productive and you're not getting that in Saskatoon. And yet our governments will go and ask you to pay just as much as income taxes as I do, but they're not asking me to contribute more in the wealth that I'm getting as a result of sleeping in my home. Like, why do you think that's unfair? Why do you actually not think, oh, that would be good, that would benefit me, you know, take pressure off my income taxes, potentially raise some money to create some more affordable housing in my community, and also ask those who are benefiting from what is harming many others to contribute more. And I had to go into that amount of detail. I had to literally stop the interview live on TV and say, wait, hold off. And when we had that conversation, we made some progress. And so our working group has slowly but surely been trying to design the tax policy in a way that, as we said, you know, when we first started, like 90% of Canadians would be exempt from it. You know, home prices have continued to rise. So I think it's only 88% now. Um, but we're trying to do that to increase its political palatability. But nevertheless, try and hit a, send a bigger signal to our housing system than, say, the speculation and vacancy tax um, that we talked about in a previous episode in this podcast, which the BC government designed specifically to exempt almost everyone in BC. They brag that it applies to fewer than 1% of residents. And it's too small a policy signal. So across Canada, we're sending a signal to pretty much those 10% who live in the most affluent households. And in Ontario and BC, it's the top quarter. And it's the top quarter in those provinces because that's where we've most lost control over home prices and where the greatest wealth windfalls have uh, been accrued. So let's talk about the revenue side of the equation because I think part of what makes people hate taxes so much is you just think about like this is just something that's going out of our pockets that goes to the government and we don't kind of have a conception of well you know there's something that happens with that money um so in this case you're suggesting that this tax would raise five billion dollars a year and the proposal is then that this money that's generated from the tax be funneled into purpose-built rentals and cooperative housing so could you talk a little bit about that yeah, so as we're raising revenue from wealth windfalls acquired through housing in a context where we have an unaffordability crisis for so many, it makes sense to use much of the revenue to try and invest back into housing specifically this tr- that will be um, charging a rent that's not being dictated by the rising values of home prices. So we're trying to create more stock of affordable rental across this country and also cooperative housing. I really do think the cooperative housing movement is such a critical part of success for transforming Canada's housing system going forward. And groups like the Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada and its uh, its BC chapter here, read by just a great guy, Tom Armstrong. Um, such a fan of Tom. Thank you so much for all your leadership, Tom, if you're listening. Um, they have really good plans about how to scale up cooperative housing. And so they have good plans. The BC Nonprofit Housing Association has good plans. The Ontario Not-for-Profit Housing Association has good plans. The city of Vancouver has plans to create housing geared to income, trying to make make housing more affordable for those folks who are making 80,000 and less. The plans are there. What they don't have is the revenue. They don't have the resources. And so this surtax could create resources to invest in those plans and help scale up what those groups are good at delivering at. 
And I would also add, though, that the revenue is being collected at a time and from a generation in a moment that you know we have witnessed during COVID, that there are gaps in our long-term care facilities for seniors, that there are pressures on our medical care system with an aging population. And we should have another podcast to talk about why that's the case, why an aging population today was not asked, unfortunately, by our legislatures when they were younger to pay enough into our tax system to cover the cost of long-term care and to cover the cost of medical care when they were older. And because our legislation was faulty decades ago, we now have this omission of services that an older population needs, but they're not at their life course stage where in their labor market where they're actually going to be contributing taxes that much via their incomes. And so if you want to fill that gap in services of health care and extended care for those who are frail, we need to figure out how that generation can, especially those who are, have more means in that generation, who can contribute to paying those costs without leaving the bills for their kids and grandchildren. And that's the beauty of taxing housing wealth more, especially for those who have home value of over a million bucks, because that's disproportionately older Canadians who bought into the housing sums decades ago when they were regular folks and regular folks can afford homes. And that is why there's this lovely win-win. We can create affordable housing for those people's kids and grandchildren, and we can actually invest more in the medical care and in the extended long-term care that they're needing now, and we can do so in ways that don't leave unfair bills for their kids and grandchildren. There are very few places in public policy where there's such a virtuous circle in terms of outcomes and getting the distributional issues right between generations. This is one of them. It's why I'm a big fan of this particular proposal, even though it's provocative, even though it's disruptive, but especially because it's actually just right and efficient. Okay, so yeah, I mean, we've kind of hinted at this a few times now um, that there is a bit of controversy around this proposal. I'm sure listeners don't find that surprising. So let's talk a little bit about that. And let's go back to that example of an elderly person who's on a fixed income and happens to live in a home that is worth, you know, let's say well over a million dollars. Is it fair to ask this person to, you know, pay this tax? Let's say they, you know, they're already having a hard time meeting ends meet and they'd have this hanging over their shoulders. Yeah, great question. First of all, I'm going to reject the idea that they have this hanging over their shoulders. You know, we taxes aren't things that hang over our shoulders. Taxes are one way by which we pay for things that are important to us. We pay for things that are important to us directly as consumers. And sometimes that can be remarkably inefficient, like, hey, I need a road to get between A and B, or I need a school, or I need a hospital, or I need clean air. And those are things that we're not individually responsible. We don't have entire control over with our decisions. And in those moments, we need to do things more collectively, and taxes are the way that we contribute our fair share. So this isn't something that hangs over us. This is actually how we pay for things we want and that we make use of regularly. But we've also designed this tax policy. My colleagues in the tax policy working group from our solutions lab, we said, look, we know that you can, at certain moments in your lives, be um, cash constrained and health wealthy. And so many provinces already have in place policies that allow seniors to defer paying their property taxes until their home is sold or inherited. 
And we said, okay, we understand what purpose that's serving. You know, if you're, you are constrained by modest income, but you have lots of wealth in your home, then that's fine. Don't pay it until the, the wealth from your home becomes e more easier to access you know, when it's sold. And so we've retained that idea and not only suggested that it would be available for seniors in that situation, but it could be available to anyone in a million dollar home. Um, they don't have to pay that sur tax that we're proposing. They wouldn't have to, it doesn't exist yet, but they wouldn't have to pay it uh, until the home is sold or inherited. And so that just takes that pressure off in the moment in terms of your income stream and how it fluctuates, you know, month to month, year to year, etc. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, starts recognizes that those people in million dollar homes and more valuable homes still are different from someone with similar income as a renter. And actually, Canadians agree. I mean, we asked in a recent poll, which said, look, I'm going to give you a really extreme example. A 65-year-old retiree with a fixed pension income of $22,000 a year, but lives in a home that's fully paid off worth a million bucks. Nearly one in two Canadian respondents said, yeah, I think that person's wealthy. But our tax system treats them as if they're poor and actually delivers them a guaranteed income supplement. And so, and then we asked about, you know, what about in a $2 million home? And even, you know, now a majority of Canadians say, yeah, that person's wealthy. And so our understanding of who's income constrained and who's affluent uh, is really evolving as a result of what housing is doing. That's why I said housing has become this transformational factor in Canadian society, really disrupting class dynamics. And that then intersects with age and gender and race and colonialism. And so it is really giving rise to new kinds of inequalities that our house, that our tax policy has to catch up with. So we designed our surtax proposal to accommodate the needs and aspirations of many older folks to want to stay in their homes and not face additional year-over-year -year cash pressures given their income. No problem. We can accommodate that. And nevertheless, we can collect a modest, modest portion of the wealth windfall that such people have gained from their housing at the, at the time they sell it and or it is inherited. We've talked now a fair bit about the resistance and we'll continue, maybe we'll, we'll chat a bit more about that. But you mentioned the polling that we did around this. And one of the pieces from that was that, uh, in fact, two thirds of Canadians support a surtax like this. Yeah, and let's really just have whatever remains of the interview focus in on this issue. So I'm going to engage with your question, but I'm going to first dodge the support. I'm just going to go back to the, the critique, the, the negativity for a moment. It is the case that many political leaders have said, no way, we're not doing, we're not doing, well, for, they often say we're not going to have a capital gains tax on housing because they haven't even read the proposal. We're not proposing a capital gains tax. We know that that's sort of like a third rail and that people, you know, politicians don't want to touch it. But what I think that that political reaction from leaders of all parties drives, whether it's the NDP in BC or the Conservatives in Ontario or the Liberals federally, so I just got my nonpartisan uh, uh, credentials out there, folks. And uh, all of these people are having the kind of reaction because they think it is politically unpalatable for their electorate. But that's what I'm so excited about this poll doing, is actually it's showing that, oh, parliamentarians' assumptions about what's politically doable is actually outdated. It might not have been doable a few years ago, but Canadians see how harmful this growing gap between home prices and earnings has become for society. We have witnessed what it means to lock out literally generations of younger, talented, hardworking, well-educated folks from thinking that home ownership might be in their reach in cities across this country. And they're a bigger part of the electorate. And so you can see that I think public opinion is changing. So as you point 
pointed out, over 60% of Canadians from coast to coast to coast are actually supportive of the idea of putting a modest price on housing inequity or a surtax on home value over a million dollars. Support is especially strong, unsurprisingly, outside of Ontario and BC, where you have more of those million-dollar folk homeowners. But still, a majority of people in Ontario and BC are supportive of the idea. I think it's like over 70% in some of the other provinces. You can win elections with that. And on top of that, what's so fascinating is that actually... A, a large proportion of homeowners who self-identify as owning homes over a million bucks say, yeah, we should put a modest price on housing inequity amongst the 10% of Canadians residing in the most affluent principal residences. They understand that. They actually are especially likely to say, oh, it's harmed people, this growing gap in home prices and earnings. It's benefited people. They're especially likely to understand the benefit because they're getting them. And so they, um, those folks over a million in homes over a million dollars say, yeah, let's let's add a modest surtax on the top 10, 12 percent of people getting, you know, wealth windfall gains from housing. But the moment you point out, oh, that surtax would come in at the value above one million, they're like, oh, I didn't realize you meant me. And then their support drops down to like 15 or 16 percent. And so what we have is that many folks living in million dollar homes don't realize it's such a signal of affluence. You know, I was looking at our Twitter account the other day after the McLean's article came out, and there was a lovely woman maybe in Waterloo, somewhere in, in Ontario, you know, in a city that isn't, you know, the GTA or Hamilton, some of the most expensive. And the person's like, look, you know, I get the logic in this article, but the threshold at which you've set your surtax is kind of out of step with reality. A million bucks buys you a three-bedroom starter. So adjust your threshold. And I'm like, I really ask you to ask you to reconsider what you just said. For many people trying to step out in the housing system today, including in Waterloo, the thought of owning a three-bedroom household is a luxury that is actually not in reach. Let me say that. It's a luxury not in reach. And so that thing not being in reach now, that what seems like a luxury to him, has made the person who's in it, more often than not, much more affluent than they were when they first bought it. And those are the dynamics that we're wrestling with. So I, I hope that we can get that lovely woman in Waterloo to recognize, oh, you mean being in this three-bedroom household and owning it is actually a, a signal of affluence that we didn't understand in the past. It, was, it, didn't, it didn't play out in the, quite the same way when it was much more common. It's not that common any longer, and it's getting less common for a younger dynamic. That is the generational issue that we were, we're trying to address in no small part with this kind of tax shift. Less on income, more on high-value housing wealth. Yeah, speaking of Waterloo, that's where I grew up. And my parents own a small semi-detached home that I grew up in. And they are shocked at what the house is, you know, valued at today. I mean, it's not over a million dollars. It's a small house, but it's many times what they bought it for. And we often have this conversation that there's no way they would be able to afford the house if they were to try to buy it today. And there's no way any of their children, all three of us, could buy that house uh, if we were to try to buy it today. So yeah, I think that reality is quite apparent to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people like my parents think, well, yeah, we need to do something. And, you know, if it means that we have to have a tax like this, I mean, you know, this is this is the sort of thing we need. And the other thing is, well, you know, 
I mean, I know you said we don't want to talk so much about the negative pushback that we've been getting, but I, I just, there are other things that people sort of say, well, why focus on people who, uh, you know, many of whom consider themselves part of the middle class when you could be focusing on corporate investors or, or people with multiple properties? You know, I, I do think that it's, it's worthwhile to, to respond to that. It's a brilliant question. And I guess I would say we should walk and chew gum at the same time. This is not an either or thing. And so yesterday we were focusing on one policy issue and in other podcasts in this Hard Truth series, we focus on a range of policy issues. And that's because we support a broad range of policy issues, at policy changes as it relates to housing, as it relates to family policy, as it relates to climate policy. There are big challenges facing our intergenerational system. It is, it is leaving younger people with our hard work paying off less than a whole range of unfair debts environmentally and fiscally. And so we need to change a bunch of things. And today we're talking about a surtax that actually invites many everyday households to consider whether or not they're affluent, consider whether or not they might be, to use a Scotiabank logo, be richer than you think, that they might be having assumptions and making decisions, maybe just out of habit, that actually reinforce the system of housing that tolerates home prices growing higher and higher and higher and leaving earnings behind. And yes, we should focus on corporate actors. Yes, we should focus, as Jen Squeeze has said, you know, on foreign buyers and people who buy properties and treat them as hotels for visitors rather than places to rent out uh, to those who live and study locally, uh, work and study locally, I should have said. Um, people who keep homes empty, people who have multiple properties, these are all things that we can talk about. But systems, systems sustain themselves over time most often when a majority of actors in that system make a range of decisions intentionally or otherwise that reinforces the status quo. And so we have witnessed for years in this country that a group like Gen Squeeze has struggled to convince people to say, I don't want home prices to rise. We've struggled to have legislators say, we want home prices to stall, maybe even fall somewhat, um, so that earnings can catch up. But that has been seen to be too politically contentious. That's a cultural issue that we need to, to disrupt. And our, our intention behind the surtax, we want to raise the $5 million, pardon me, $5 billion, because I want to build the 150,000 uh, cooperative housing units and purpose-built rental units that will come and reach what locals earn. I want to build those things. I think we can, the data shows we can do that in an election cycle for free and we can keep building more thereafter. I want that. And I want to have revenue to invest in the childcare or the extended long-term care that seniors need or families with kids need. But what I also want, what we desperately need in society is this surtax to actually prompt people to think about what do I want from? Do I want my home to cross into that million dollar threshold and now I'll be subject to the tax? This tax change will help say, I don't want that. And then suddenly we have people saying, oh, you know, maybe it isn't so good if housing prices always continue to rise. Or when they do rise and I'm getting benefits while I'm sleeping and watching TV, well, maybe actually that should be taxed more and more heavily than say when I'm going to work and working my butt off. So that's the surtax can raise revenue and invest in important things, but it also can be culturally disruptive and it can cause conversations for people to rethink, hey, I have a modest income, but I live right in a home that's worth $2 million and I have no mortgage on it. Am I affluent or not? Am I poor or not? 
We need that conversation. If we're going to have the hearts and minds of Canadians be open to the range of policy changes this country needs to make so that Canada works for all generations and we address the unaffordability and the climate crises facing us, as well as the pressures that an aging population is going to be putting on our, our fiscal circumstances and do that in a way that's just and nurturing to the parents and grandparents who are aging that we love. Yeah, and I think just to underscore your point about, you know, we want to tax things that we want less of. So I think if we ask people, like, do we think it's a good idea that in the GTA, in the greater Vancouver area, you know, average home prices are, uh, you know, at a million dollars or higher? I think most people would say, yeah, that's a bad thing, you know, societally. And so that's why this kind of proposal is exactly what we need. We want less of that. And that does mean that, okay, so in those areas, there's going to be plenty of people who have to pay this tax. And so, as you're saying, culturally, hopefully that that also encourages a shift in the way we think about housing as an investment and, you know, continuing to want the, the price of it to continue to go up. It's brilliantly said, Mary. You said more succinctly than me. I'm going to try and capture it also in sort of that punchline. So we want to tax bads more and tax goods less. And... As we make a cultural shift, I have reported when reading the provincial budget in Ontario and BC for many years now that their budgets brag that housing housing markets are strong as prices rise. <laughs> we so desperately need the future budgets in Ontario and BC to say housing prices are stronger now because they've gone, you know, they're stalled or, you know, gone down uh, somewhat in a way that allows earnings to catch up in, a, you know, in the years ahead. That's what would make our housing system strong. Uh, if, if you think housing, the housing system's primary purpose is to deliver affordable housing, to deliver affordable places to call home. When you say that housing markets are strong when prices rise, then you're not assuming the housing system's primary purpose is to provide affordable places to go home is to provide good returns on investment that is what we need to shift that's why gen squeeze has for years had this principle homes first investment second and for anyone out there you know especially like in our demographic there are some younger folks often you know working their tails off well educated not necessarily in the gta and metro van but in other cities and you know they've bought into they bought homes they've got big mortgages now and they're like I like Gen Squeeze, but you know, really, I I can't get a bit of a payoff for my house now. Like, really, can't I hope to see even a, a fraction of what those like you, Paul, by the way, and those who came before you have been gaining from their housing? And I say a couple of things. I say, one, given that our demographic, our generation knows how hard it's been to make secure housing come available to us in this system that has grow in such a gap between rents and home prices and local earnings that we have to be the generation that says, no, no longer. We're going to get this right, partly for ourselves and especially for our kids. And also, I, I'm, I want to say, like, okay, so you have a $600,000 mortgage right now. Then by all means, I wish you much success in over the next 25, 30 years paying off that $600,000 mortgage. It'll be an amazing achievement and may you have one wonderful mortgage burning party if people have those things, I don't know, nowhere near mine yet, um, and, and, and celebrate that. And so then, you know, paying yourself off, you'll now have 600,000 more in equity. It'd be like paying your piggy bank. That's what the mortgage payment is. Have at it, that, that's a fine way to grow equity. But you can't be a young person right now saying, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? I want to pay off that $600,000 mortgage, and I hope my home goes up by six hundred grand." We can't have those two things. 
The latter is the wealth windfall that makes it even more expensive for your kids and grandchildren to make a home down the road. That's what we need to disrupt. We need to be the generation to do it. Okay, for those people who are listening and want to support this proposal, what can they do concretely to do that? So first off, get informed about the the proposal. Fewer than 12% of Canadians are going to be subject to the tax. Those who are, they're living in the most affluent households. Get informed. Then share the idea. Share it with your friends. Be courageous enough to talk about taxation right now, which often can be a bit of a taboo. And in particular, bring it to, you know, intergenerational spaces. Talk about your parents and your aunts and your uncles and grandparents and so on, because we need to spread the word. And as you do it, you're, you know, I have to prime you, you might be... You need to be ready for people like, oh, I don't think it's a good idea. Or, you know, if only people just worked harder, then, you know, they would be able to afford a home too, like we did back in the day. And that's where I need to be extra brave. Say no, that's BS. Hard work simply doesn't pay off today like it used to. You want to know why? Because home prices are so much more expensive now by comparison to the past. They require so much more hard work to pay for them. And then I need you at certain moments when our group says, please, you know, sign up and be part of our network. Do it. It may not sound like it's going to change the country, but our power to influence public policy grows with the size of our network. It is power to have tens of thousands of people associated with what we're doing, especially when a subgroup of those tens of thousands also say, I like that policy proposal. And at certain moments, we're going to ask you to do that. And at certain moments, we might even ask you to send a letter later in the fall saying, hey, the budget's coming up federally and in Ontario and in BC. We think this policy should be there. These are all asks that individually aren't going to change the country, but together they make up a, our strategy to change public policy, and cumulatively they lead to wins. And, you know, I know that in no small part because it was Generation Squeeze that started the branding for a national child care recommendation called $10 a day child care. It was Generation Squeeze that said child care shouldn't be another rent or mortgage-sized payment. And, well, it took longer than I would have liked. If you go read the federal budgets that have made historic generational level investments into childcare, they use the $10 a day moniker and they say childcare should no longer be another rent or mortgage size payment. Changing hearts and minds makes it possible for politicians to be brave and respond to problems. That's what my series of asks that I just articulated invite you to do. Okay, and I'm gonna add a couple more or really just one more. Wonderful. Okay, so for those who are listening to this, we're going to include a link to the McLean's piece that we've been talking about. If you could take five or 10 minutes out of your day, get the email of your provincial and federal representative, send them an email with the link to the article and tell them, okay, look, I'm a young person who can't afford housing. This is this is the kind of proposal that I would like you to support. And you can ccs uh, info at gensqueeze.ca. Uh, If you aren't a young person, if you happen to be someone who actually owns a home that is more than a million dollars, even better. Tell them, look, I own a home that's worth more than a million dollars. I would like the gains I've made to be taxed. And again, send that to your provincial and federal representative and CCS. So that's a very concrete thing that you can do. Uh, And as Paul said, our proposals have actually made it into federal budgets. And and so it's going to take some time. But we're going to win this. Agreed. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. As always, please subscribe if you haven't done so yet. Rate and review the podcast on Apple if you can. 
tell your friends, tell your parents, tell your kids if you have any about us and about the podcast. And feel free to reach out to us by writing to info at chensqueeze.ca. We'll see you again soon.